Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Pastor Pat, for those kind words. And thank the Lord for the lion and the lamb. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? With that question in mind, I, I want to direct your attention to the screen and to the graphic which depicts our current sermon series theme, Theology on Fire. When we say that, we're really talking about God on fire because theology is the study of God. And Scripture reminds in Hebrews 12 and 29 that our God is a consuming fire. I wish, I wish, I wish I could somehow pull back the curtain that separates us from seeing God face to face. But if I were to do that, all of us would be instantly vaporized. For no man can see the face of God and live. Exodus 33, verse 20. He dwells in inescapable light. And in that regard, he's not unlike the sun, that brightest ball of fire in the sky. Do you know that temperatures at the surface of the sun reach 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit? And if you were to dive into the deepest recesses of the core of the sun, it reaches 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The sun is amazing. While it's so powerful in its burning influence, it also has the power of life therein. Think about it for a moment, the contrastive power of the sun. The sun, of course, according to scripture, according to science, it, it shines and it blinds. The sun, the sun softens and the sun hardens. The sun heals and the sun destroys. And so does God. I want you to consider with me today this God whom the psalmist described as our sun and our shield. Psalm 84 verse 11. And my objective today, unapologetically, is to try to so exalt God, to so get him up that your hearts will burn within you for fear, the fear of the Lord. Scripture tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. So what is the fear of the Lord? Do you understand it? that phrase that's used throughout Scripture? We are to fear the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it starts, ironically, with a word that's rather... Emphatic, it, it starts with terror. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It moves on to awe and then to reverence or respect. It moves on to trust. I'm talking saving faith. It moves on to love. And then finally, to worship. We're talking worship of the one true God through his Son, faith in Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God of the Bible. And we express our worship by way of obedience. This, my friends, is the fear of the Lord. And to light this fear, I'm going to use one text of Scripture and then support it from numerous other texts. And in effect, I'm going to drop a rock in the center of the pond and then let the ripples cascade out from there. My text, the center of the pond, if you will, is Romans 11, verse 22. Here's what it says. Note then the kindness 
a reference, of course, to God's goodness and the severity or the judgment of God. Friends, I don't know what you think about God, but the God of the Bible is both kind and severe. We must embrace both if we're to have a correct understanding of him. And I want to start with the latter. I'm going to ask you, first of all, to contemplate the severity of God. I'm going to be very forthcoming today in what I share because this message has been burning in my heart for decades. That's why I'm here today to preach. I have increasingly grieved the collapse of our culture during the course of my life. The America in which I now live is not the America into which I was born. I'm going to resist the urge to indulge discussion of the political influences that have led to this demise. Instead, I want to zero in on the biblical reason why all of this has befallen us. And here it is, in a nutshell, quoted from Romans 3, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How would you describe the culture? If you watch the evening news, what would you say about it? Well, let's let the Apostle Paul describe our current culture from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. See if you agree. Understand this, he writes, that in the last days, we're in the last of the last days, the final of the final days. There will come times of difficulty, perilous times. We need to be like the sons of Issachar who understood the days, the times, and this is what people are like today. They're lovers of self. They're lovers of money. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're abusive. They're disobedient to their parents. They're ungrateful, unholy. They're heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They're brutal. They're not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Paul says you have to avoid these people. I want to reflect on the two words I, I put into bold on the screen. Those, those words are abusive and brutal because they're an apt description of the current culture of death in our culture. And I'm talking about abortion which is now being widely accepted in our society. I'm afraid even among certain Christians. This resonates with me after receiving a picture recently. My wife and I, Karen, are blessed with four children. My second-born, James, and his wife, Angie, are now expecting their fifth child, and they just sent us a 3D ultrasound picture. This baby's only 18 weeks along. That's less than half the way through the pregnancy. Less than half of the way. Think about all the kids, kids that are being murdered today in the womb. This is so touching to me to, to look at. By the way, uh, a heartbeat starts at five weeks, 35 days. And there was great joy when I listened to the sound effects of that baby's heartbeat and her older brother's commentary as he placed his hand upon his mommy's tummy. I want you to take a look and listen. You're right, Eddie. You felt her moving because he's a child created by God. 
not to be murdered by her mother. The sixth commandment is still in the Bible. I had to fight back the tears of gratitude for a new life. As I mentioned, 13 grandchildren. By the way, we don't take them for granted. I think we have what, honey? Is, is it eight, nine that are miscarried along the way? And, and this couple have lost four children by miscarriage, and now this will be their fifth child, live birth, Lord willing. But I had to fight back the tears as I looked at these pictures. Not just because of joy over this little baby girl, but more than that, over the multitudes, the millions, who have not been celebrated, but have been terminated. The demise of these last days did not somehow start here in the 21st century, or even in the 20th century. It goes all the way back to the beginning, back to Genesis 3, to the fall of man, and to, if you will, the loss of the fear of God. And the classic text that describes what is going on in our current culture is Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. The verses will also be on the screen for you. Romans 1.18. For the wrath, we're talking the severity of God, first of all. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they're without excuse. No one's excuse in this world. For although they knew God, everybody knows there's a God. It's placed deep within them by God himself. They did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile or empty in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, that is, blinded. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And watch now the word that's used. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, as a result, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And here it is again, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, this creator who is blessed forever, Paul adds, amen to that. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural sexual relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. To verse 32. And though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The lusts of their hearts, the dishonoring of their bodies, include every moral perversion that's being promoted and celebrated today. In fact, I believe, I believe we've now reached a tipping point in our culture where the truth doesn't matter because God doesn't matter. We're in a post-truth era. What is post-truth? That's where society elevates feelings and preferences over facts. 
can I pause a moment just to address any, any pastor friends who may be watching this message after the fact online? Because churches, evangelical churches, are really being overwhelmed today by cultural pressures to succumb to immoral ideologies. I'm going to beg you, my fellow pastors, do not bow the knee to the current culture, but bow the knee to God. Be bold, be strong, be true. As a friend put it, pastors who don't prepare their churches to stand against the sexual revolution are preparing their churches to be conquered by it. Now let's be loving. Let's be kind and compassionate to those who are ensnared in sin. But let's be bold as a lion and preach, thus saith the Lord, what saith the scriptures? In a nutshell, what we're seeing is a rejection of what has been called in apologetic circles, twoism. And it's simply distinguishing between the creator and the creation. That stands a distinction from one-ism that tends to blend both creator and creation together within one circle, making them equal, making them the same. One-ism, that's the dominant philosophy of our day. And when they do that, everything is placed within one circle, and frankly, it, it, it perverts the worldview. Let me give you illustrations. Number one, there's no distinction within oneism between God and the universe. This leads to pantheism. God is in everyone and everything. It leads to radical environmentalism. The earth is the end all. The God of the earth. Number two, there's no distinction between God and mankind. That leads to humanism. Man becomes his own God. Secularism, where the government rules God out of the public sector and even increasingly the private sector. And then there's evolutionary atheism, which dominates higher education. They've sold their souls down the river to the ideology that we are an accidental creation if you will, of somehow evolutionary processes, which leads naturally to, to atheism. Then number three, there's no distinction between the worship of God and the worship of the creation. We're talking paganism, radical animal rights activism, and universalism of religious thought, where all religious ideologies are considered equally valid. And finally, number four, this is Romans 1. There's no distinction between the sexes. Feminism, lesbianism, transgenderism, and homosexuality. My friends, creation order is fundamental. Without the creation order, a society crumbles. Biblical theology maintains that God is and that he speaks. He's transcendent. He's above all. He's sovereign over all. He determines all. As Al Mohler put it, and I'm quoting now, the sexual revolution is not a modification of the creation order. It is a denial of the creation order. It is a denial of God. It's the result of the fact that there's no fear of God before their eyes. To quote D.A. Carson, Pastor Jason mentioned him a few weeks ago, and I'm going to repeat this quote. The heart of all this evil is idolatry itself. 
It is the degoding of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker saying, in effect, if you don't see things my way, I'll make my own gods. In fact, I will be my own God. And to all of this, to all of this, God announces his severity. Do you believe it? Do you believe the God of the Bible? Look again at his announcement of wrath in 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. All those who by their unrighteous deeds suppress the truth, that is, they suppress the God voice. They, they, they shove it aside. They push it down. They, they reject that God voice within and when a culture rejects the knowledge of God, judgment ensues. And in this text, he's talking about the judgment of abandonment. I do not have time today to address all of these various forms of wrath or, or judgment, but I will briefly give you an overview. There is, first of all, the eternal wrath of hell, which, of course, is revealed at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 15. And the books were opened, and another book is opened, which is the book of life. And whosoever's name is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's where the vast majority of mankind are going. They're on the broad road to destruction, Matthew 7, verse 13. Then there's the eschatological wrath, that is end-time wrath revealed in Bible prophecy, Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Even if you uh, perhaps are a little confused by the symbolism that's contained therein about the time of the tribulation, you got to understand that these verses are talking about the wrath of the Lamb, the judgment coming upon planet Earth, yet future, at a time when God shows his anger for mankind's rebellion. And then there is, thirdly, the cataclysmic wrath of nature, the natural result of living in a sin-cursed world, Romans 8, 18 to 23. This wrath includes tornadoes, hurricanes, forest fires, floods, earthquakes. And to quote this same text from Romans 8, it, it says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until now. Friends, we're talking the wrath of God. A pastor spoke to this when he said a few words in the announcements. Pastor did not prevail upon me to speak today. I felt I must preach because God has put this message into my heart. And so I come in weakness to beg you to flee the wrath to come. Uh, James Cameron, he the director of the Blockbuster movie, Titanic, has spoken out of the submergence community about the senseless tragedy of the loss of five lives on that submersible, that sub called Titan. And he said there's a remarkable similarity between these two stories. Because the, the captain of the Titanic ignored the warnings that he was moving rapidly into an ice field on a moonless night, full steam ahead, running the risk of destroying multitudes on board because of his prideful resistance. And the parallel between those in the community that warned Ocean Gate that it was not wise with his experimental craft because it hadn't been fully tested about the potential of those five men on board losing life or limb. And sure enough, 
Cameron said, there is an amazing similarity between these two entities, and now both lie in ruins two miles below the surface of the Atlantic. 300 were captured, if you will, drawn out of the waters and, and died above the surface, and 1,200 were entombed down beneath, and now five more joined them from the Titan. What am I saying? I'm here today because I'm begging, I've been praying that somebody would come to faith in Christ. Flee this wrath to come. I'm giving you a warning from the word of God. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And you can only escape that hell by faith in Jesus Christ. He alone can save you by his shed blood. And I'm begging you. Well, yet there is hope. You know, when you have heart surgery, you, you realize you may, you know, someday Lord may call you home. And I don't know how many more times I have to preach. And I thought, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to preach. Because I love you enough to beg you to flee the wrath to come. Back to the judgment of the text here. We're reading the wrath of abandonment. Mentioned in verse 24 and 26 and 28, in each of these three verses, Paul uses a specific phrase, God gave them up. In a sense, God gave up on them. They reached a point of no return. But specifically here, Paul is saying that God abandoned them to their own choices and to the results of those choices. It includes the removal of God's restraining grace. When God lets go, the wrath is already at work in the culture. And we're seeing... Those results in spades, even as I speak, our culture is crumbling before our very eyes. The Titan is about to implode. Are you ready? This is why the answer to our dilemma is not political. No political party will save us. The answer is spiritual. You say, well, what is that answer? It is as the Bible commands us to preach the gospel to every creature. It is to preach the word of salvation to men and women and boys and girls and beseech them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jude said in Jude 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And then he changes the imagery a bit to say, to others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What does that mean? It means in evangelizing the depraved, be careful you don't let their lifestyle infect you. Now, if you grasp the sobriety of what I have just preached from God's word, which in large part is absent in most churches in America, only then can you truly rejoice if you're one of the elect who God has snatched from the fire of God's judgment. And if he has, oh, the joy of knowing and reveling in his wonder throughout eternity. And that leads me to my second emphasis this morning. Contemplate the kindness of God. The, the kindness here implies the ideas of, of mercy and grace. Mercy is judgment withheld. Grace is blessing bestowed that's undeserved. For all of the heaviness of the severity I've spoken of, kindness celebrates the unbelievable goodness of God to those of us who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? 
If you are, it is God who for no reason other than the glory of his sovereign grace has hunted us down and like a holy hound has led us to faith in his son, the Lord Jesus, and he has drawn us to himself to save us forever. This is a mystery. This is a spectacular, sovereign serendipity. And if you take careful note of the lyrics we sing and the songs here as we celebrate God, we celebrate the grace of God and the kindness of God and the mercy of God because of our salvation in Christ, because we know from what we have been saved. Yeah, we have been saved. Begs the question, saved from what? The late R.C. Sproul said, we've been saved from God. What? What are you saying, R.C.? We've been saved from the wrath of God. It's revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. We've been saved from that. Why? How? Because God has poured out all of his wrath upon his son upon the tree who drank that cup of wrath to the very bottom of the dregs. And God separated himself from his son while he poured out his anger in paying an atonement for our sins so that we might be forever saved. And through it, God's righteous judgment has been satisfied and we who believe are justified. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus Romans 8, verse 1. Now, as a counselor, I, I have a unique perspective, and my, my preaching has changed over the years, the last nine years counseling. It, it, it actually invades my preaching because of what I hear. And time and again, I have people come to me who've reached the bottom, and they pour out their hearts in despair, thinking that for them there is no hope. They've sinned egregiously. They think that their addictions and their perversions have forever barred them from the door to heaven. And with them, I beg to differ. They say, wait a minute, Kurt. You, you just talked about God's judgment giving people up. Look at the context of Romans 1 and Romans 11. He's talking about people groups. He's talking about cultures. He's talking about nations. Nations can step across the point of no return. I believe America has already slipped across the precipice. God has given up on our country. But there's always hope for individuals because where there's life, there's hope. I'm preaching to individuals. Well, let me use my friend Brian as exhibit A. I pastored for 27 years in the greater Seattle area. And years ago, a family moved in across the street from us, Bob and Sheila. And through God's sovereign grace, he was kind enough to allow me to lead Bob to faith in Christ. He became a leader in our church, and Sheila came back to the Lord. Two children, Kathleen and Brian. Brian, in late grade school, did a stage left, walked away from his faith. Frankly, in early adolescence, he entered a, a life of drug abuse and homosexuality. But recently, I've been on the phone with Bob and family because Sheila was promoted to heaven after a bout with Parkinson's, and I've been trying to walk them through that because of my love for them. And I got a chance to talk to Brian, and I, I learned that God has done a work of grace in Brian's life. 
He's been transformed. And he talked about it, and he, he wrote me about it, and we've exchanged texts. And, and just two weeks ago, it was in my former church, Grace Point in Western Washington. And, and this is what he wrote me in a text. He said, I was overcome with tears at the magnitude of what Christ has done for sinners like me, his grace and mercy. I have turned away from my lifestyle of drugs and homosexuality. I know it is a part of my life that had to be put away with the old man if I'm a new creation in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. I'm praying for Brian. You know, you can have that same testimony no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, because the severity of God's wrath in Romans 1 is followed by the wonder of God's grace and mercy, his kindness in Romans chapters 3 to 5. In chapter 5, verse 8, we read, God demonstrates his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as a result of his resurrection, we can now have forgiveness of sins if we believe on his son. And the invitation is extended to every person here. I wish I could move row to row and just talk to you personally. I have that privilege in my counseling office, but I'd like to visit with you every one row by row, all the way back to the nosebleed section. I'd like to ask you, are you right with God? Are you sure? Are you going to heaven? God is inviting you. If you'll provide the sinner, God's already provided the Savior. And here's the invitation. If you will confess that is agree with, with God, that Jesus is Lord, that implies his death for us as a sacrifice. And if you will believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved Romans 10, 9, and verse 13. What I don't want anyone here to think is that we who have been saved are somehow worth more than those who have not been saved. Despite how I have preached what God's word has had to say about the people of Romans chapter 1, I'm not one whit better than any of them or anybody on planet earth. I agree with the apostle Paul. I am the chief of sinners. And whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin or any other kind of sin against God, he pronounces judgment upon it all. And God sees all of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that includes me. And so I deal with these people in compassion and love because they need Jesus. My problem is that I found that many of God's children who struggle with self-image have succumbed to a bad brand of theology of intrinsic worth apart from Christ. Now listen to me carefully. I, don't, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say something like this. I found that Christ died for me because he saw that I was worth it. That is not Bible theology. I wasn't worth it and neither were you. God would be fair if every one of us went to hell. But in mercy, he saves those who cling to Christ. I want to quote John Piper. I love what he says here. We are unworthy of Christ, but because of Christ, we now have great worth. Do you see the difference? Christ died for us not because we were worthy, but because there was no other way for the unworthy to be saved. We must never forget where he found us and what he did for us. 
Now, you ought to be shouting from the mountaintops if you have been saved. If you've been delivered from this wrath to come, your heart ought to be exploding in joy for the eternal bliss that will be yours because of the grace of God in Christ. And I love this classic description of it in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at these words. We were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, oh, I love that, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Everyone here can be saved by grace. The invitation's open. It's to you. I'm talking to you personally. You can be saved today. As I told you earlier, I'm begging God that someone will come to Christ today. It's why I stand here in weakness. Because I'm begging you to flee the wrath to come and embrace the grace of God in Christ, which is beyond belief in its wonder. I've talked today about the fear of the Lord, the severity and the kindness. I don't want you to experience the first. I want you to experience the second. The kindness of God forever and eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I pray that You will do what this poor preacher cannot. You know my heart. You know why I'm here. I'm so burdened for our nation. Our culture is gone headlong over the precipice. We're seeing all around us being buried at the bottom of the Atlantic. The submersible, the Titan, is imploding. Please do what I cannot do. I'm just a man, God, just preaching your word. But I beg, I beg that people will hear the gospel invitation and trust in Christ. And I pray that those who have been saved will know they've been saved from the wrath of God to the eternal bliss of enjoying you forever in the wonder of your kindness to us in Christ. This is amazing grace. Help us to sing it from hearts overflowing in praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?